Let's turn in the scriptures together to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Our reading in connection with Lord's Day 4 will be the first short portion of the chapter. We'll read verses 1 through 11 of Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater greater and mightier than thou, and when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them, and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and destroy thee suddenly. But thus shall ye deal with them. Ye shall destroy their altars, and break down their images, and cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repayeth them that hate him to their face, to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. Thus far we read the Holy Scriptures. The basis of this passage and the whole Bible, we consider Lord's Day 4, And it's three questions and answers. Beginning with question nine. Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? Not at all. For God made man capable of performing it, but man by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? By no means, but is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins and will punish them in his just judgment temporally and eternally as he hath declared, 
Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Is not God then also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore, his justice requires that sin, which is committed against the most high majesty of God, be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Beloved in the Lord, Lord's Day 4 brings us to the end of the Catechism's brief yet comprehensive instruction in human sin and misery. The Catechism, knowing that this is a weighty subject and one that is difficult to dwell upon, does not drag it out, but hits all of the important points quickly and concisely in three short Lord's Days. In Lord's Day 2, the Catechism sets before us how we know our sin and misery, namely out of the law of God. And God's perfect law exposes before our eyes the reality that we are prone by nature to both hate God and our neighbor. And therefore, we are incapable of keeping God's commandments perfectly. Lord's Day 3 has explained to us the answer to that very important question, whence cometh sin? Where does this proneness of the human nature to hate God and neighbor, where does it come from? And Lord's Day 3 ensures that blame is placed in the proper place. Not God, for God in the beginning created man good after his own image, capable of performing all things according to his divine law, uprightly and perfectly. But sin entered into the world by the instigation of the devil, and by the fall, the willful disobedience and rebellion of Adam and Eve, our first parents, whereby the entire human race was dragged down into sin. Last week, When we looked at the last question and answer of Lord's Day 3, we looked at the Catechism's explanation of the biblical truth of total depravity, which sets before us the extent and the depth of human sin and misery, that the result of the fall was the total corruption of the human nature such that man by nature is dead in sin. Lord's Day 4 now concludes this instruction on human sin and misery by bringing us to the pointed peak of this subject and sets before us the reality that God must punish sin. God is holy. He is just. And therefore, he judges mankind for mankind's sin. And God is righteous in his judgment. And the punishment that sin deserves is, as the Catechism describes it, extreme, that is, everlasting punishment of body and soul. And that's because sin is that serious. Every sin is committed against the most high majesty, the most high majesty of God. And God is the supremely worthy one. God is the supreme good. And therefore, any sin that is committed against God is an offense of infinite seriousness and gravity. And that brings us to the pointed peak of human misery. Man has plunged into the depths of depravity. And man deserves the extreme punishment of body and soul. And that reality that God will judge sin. And that God is righteous in his judgment. 
is a reality that is not palatable to the flesh. And Lord's Day 4 now sets before us three of the common objections that man naturally has to this reality. Really, Lord's Day 4 is very straightforward. In each of the three questions, an objection to God's punishment of sin is set forward. And in each of the three answers, we have the Bible's refutation of that objection. And each of these questions really is an attempt of sinful man to pit one of God's attributes against the others or appeal to one attribute in isolation from the others in order to excuse himself from the punishment that his sins deserve. In the first question and answer, man suggests that God is unjust for punishing sin. In the second question and answer, man suggests that God's almighty power should enable him to choose not to punish sin. And in the last question and answer, an appeal is made to God's mercy as if God's mercy should cancel out the punishment that sin deserves. When we think about those objections, we see that those are common objections that men make and that our sinful flesh is prone to make. Now, what's the purpose of walking through these common objections of sinful man to the justice of God in punishing sin? The purpose of the catechism is to prepare us for the second section, which is going to set before us the deliverer, our mediator, Jesus Christ. And to enter into the second section, every other door of escape from the consequences and the punishment of sin, every other door must be slammed shut. Man wants to find another door. He wants a door that will allow him to get out of punishment while still hanging on to his sin or get out of punishment without having to confess his sin and the justice of God in punishing sin. Lord's Day 4 closes every door so that we may focus on the one only God-given door. The way out, the way of escape, he who is the way, the truth, and the life, Christ Jesus. And so we have that positive focus, even as we go through another unpalatable truth, the punishment sin deserves, and the futility of every human objection to the justice of God in punishing sin. It points us to Christ. We consider Lord's Day 4 under the theme, Righteous in His Judgment. Righteous in His Judgment. We'll look at the three objections of man and God's answer to those objections. The first objection, is it fair? Second, is it really necessary? And third, is it overruled by God's mercy? Is it fair For God to punish human sin with extreme punishment, that is, everlasting punishment of body and soul, isn't that a bit over the top? Is it fair? And by bringing forth that question, fallen man is saying, no, it's not fair. And man says it's not fair because of man's present circumstances and situation. Let's look at man's argument against the fairness of God punishing sin. Here, in the first question and answer of the catechism, we have man's objection 
to God's punishment of sin. And man here appeals to God's justice. If God is just, then he can't punish my sin the way the Bible says he will, because that's not fair. Why is it not fair according to man? Let's hear him out. God requires obedience. And God's standard is very high, isn't it? God's standard is the perfect keeping of his law. And the perfect keeping of God's law is not merely a flawless outward compliance to the letter, but a faultless carrying out of the inner spirit of the law, which our Lord Jesus teaches us. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. Be thou perfect even as thy Father in heaven is perfect. And God will punish any imperfection. That's how high God's standard is. And now here is where man's objection comes into play. That's not possible. That's not possible. And therefore God does man injustice. He requires man to do something that man cannot do. And then he punishes man for failing to do what is impossible for him to do. As we've already seen, man is prone by nature to hate God and his neighbor. Man is conceived and born in sin. Man cannot begin to perfectly keep the law of God. And therefore, it's unfair if God is going to punish man for failing to meet his standard. The bar is set far too high. That's man's objection. Man maybe will use an illustration to help push his argument forward. And the illustration could go something like this. Imagine you get to work tomorrow morning. You walk into work. Your boss comes to you and says, there's a very important project that we need to start. You're going to start it this morning. And it's so important, it must be done by the end of the workday today. Here's the project. And he lays it up before you, sets the stuff on your desk. And as you look at this project, you think, this is impossible. I don't even have my bearings. It's going to take a couple days just to understand what this project is, let alone complete this project. So you do your best. You work hard all day, even going overtime, until your boss calls you in late that evening and asks for a progress report. And you say, I did my best, but the project is not done. And the boss says, you're fired. I told you to have that project done. You failed to meet the standard of this company. Don't even bother coming into work tomorrow. What would you say? You'd say, that is so unfair. The boss came and set before me a task that was humanly impossible to complete in one day and then punishes me for not doing the impossible. Is that what God does? Is that what God does when he says, keep my law perfectly? Or else the curse of the law will fall upon you? Let's look at the Bible's answer to that objection. Doth not God then do injustice to man? And the Bible's answer is not at all. Not at all. God is righteous in his judgment and he is just to punish man for failing to perfectly keep his law. Let's see God's airtight argument. Man's argument falls 
flat on its face because it leaves out especially two important truths. In the first place, when man argues that God is unfair, he fails to reckon with why man is incapable of perfectly keeping God's law. And here we go back to question and answer 4, 5, and 6. Back to Lord's Day 3. God created man good. God created man with the capacity to perfectly obey and keep his law. Man is incapable now. Yes. Why? Because of the willful disobedience of our first parents, whereby man himself deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. We mustn't think of man as simply unable to keep God's law because he was never sufficient for the task at hand. God made him sufficient for the task at hand, able, capable, but man threw it away. He incapacitated himself, and thus he bears the blame for his own inability. That in the first place. But now in the second place, man's objection leaves out this important truth, that fallen man is not trying his best, but falling short. Fallen man is not like the man in the illustration who gets a giant task dropped on his desk at work and then works as hard as he can that day, strives with all his might to fulfill the boss's requirements, but just can't do it. No, man, by nature, doesn't try at all. In fact, his whole nature has been turned to the opposite, as we saw last week, so that man purposely turns away from God, purposely pursues the desires of his own heart, hates God and hates his neighbor. He's not trying his best. He's continuing in the disobedience and rebellion of Adam and Eve. And so when we look at the facts, the facts of the case at hand, man's first objection falls flat. God does no injustice to man by requiring of him what he cannot perform because man incapacitated himself. And man is not trying with all his might to obey God and meet the requirements of God's law. Man is a persistently rebellious creature. And so a better illustration would be this. Fallen man is like a drunk driver. Imagine a drunk driver swerving back and forth on the road, going into oncoming traffic, and the police pull this drunk driver over, pull him out of his car, and imagine the drunk driver giving this objection, Officer, you can't arrest me. You can't hold me accountable. I'm incapable of driving in a straight line. The law can't require of me what I'm unable to do. Would that argument carry any weight? Of course not. The officer would say, drunk man, you've incapacitated yourself. You bear the blame for your inability to keep the law and drive in a straight line. And so you're going to jail. That's the condition fallen man is in. Having rendered himself incapable of keeping the law, he may make no excuses 
for his failure. And thus God is justified. God is righteous in his judgment. Righteous in his punishment of human sin. And no appeal can be made by fallen man to his own inability. A couple of applications then to wrap up our consideration of this first objection. The first is this. God's perfect righteousness is magnified here. And as God's perfect righteousness is magnified, it should humble us as we see our sin, but it should also encourage us. We have a righteous God who doesn't lower his standards to make them attainable to fallen man. The fall doesn't lower God's standards. The fall dragged the whole human race down, but it doesn't drag God down. It doesn't drag God's standards down. It doesn't change God's justice. And that's a good thing. If the fall changed God, if the fall dragged God's standards down, we would have a changeable God who is not perfect, who is not reliable, who cannot be looked to. To execute justice consistently. We would have a God who is no longer truly good. You see the changing standards of our world. And how much confusion and chaos and harm it causes. It happens with human law. You can think of examples recently where. The institution of marriage for example. Was written into the law of the land. As between one man and one woman. Based on solid moral grounds, but as public opinion changed, as cultural pressure mounted, the standard was lowered and the law was changed. That doesn't happen with God. God's law, God's will, God's goodness does not hang in the balance dependent upon the condition of man. But God remains the same. God remains holy. God remains just and nothing changes that. And that means he's a reliable God. That means he is a God who can be looked to, to see to it that justice is done, that evil is redressed, as we sang in our first Psalter number, that the good ultimately prevails. Yes, this truth humbles us, and that's good. But as those who have been redeemed in the blood of Christ, it is encouraging to know that our God is changelessly just and maintains the standard of his law. Now secondly, to apply the instruction of this first question and answer to us, let it show us our inability to keep God's law perfectly. Even as those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we have only a small beginning of the new obedience. We still have that old man, that old nature that is prone to hate God and the neighbor. We still, as regenerated children of God, fall far short of his glory. We can't keep the law perfectly. That door closes. Now look to Christ. Look to Christ. The one whom the catechism is going to be setting before us in the Lord's days to come. Jesus Christ who is the perfect law keeper as the scriptures reveal him. The perfect law keeper. The one who assumed our flesh and in our flesh kept every single commandment. 
Not just complying with those commandments outwardly, but conforming his entire being to the will of God, such that he fulfilled the spirit of the law, loving the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving his neighbor as himself, even as he suffered, even as he suffered for our sins, never once did he waver from the path of obedience that the Father had charted out for him, and he has obtained for us eternal salvation, both by his sufferings, but now Also by his perfect obedience. And he obeyed. Perfectly obeyed. Fulfilled the law of God. Not as a private individual. But as the head. Of the new humanity. The elect. Those people that Deuteronomy 7 speaks about. As the ones whom God set his love upon. Not because there was something special about them. Or some redeeming quality that God saw in them. But because God was pleased. To set his love upon them in eternity. And choose them for his people. And redeem them by the blood of Christ. To be that people. His inheritance for eternity. Christ. The perfectly obedient Christ. Fulfilled the law not as a private individual. But as the head. The new head. Of the new humanity. And thus. His obedience is ours. Imputed to us graciously. Just as Adam's disobedience was imputed to us because he was our head. So too the obedience of Jesus Christ is imputed to us. Man's objections are silenced. So that that door of escape is closed. And we look to the one God-given door. Christ our righteousness. But fallen man isn't done. We know our sinful flesh doesn't submit very quickly. And so man is ready with another question, another objection. And this second question, this second objection, seeks to pit God's power against his justice. And the question is this, is it necessary? Is it really necessary for God to punish sin? Okay, it's fair. It's fair. We'll concede that. It's fair, God is righteous in his judgment, but is it necessary? Isn't God almighty? Isn't God all powerful? And if he's all powerful, can't God just choose not to punish sin? Man now tries to pit God's omnipotence against God's justice and holiness. But as we know from the scriptures, that God has all power does not mean God can do absolutely anything. God cannot violate his own nature. Omnipotence means that God is mighty to do absolutely everything that is in harmony with who he is as the Holy One. God's almighty power means he is able to do And execute and accomplish absolutely anything that is in harmony with his unchanging nature as the supreme good. And that shows us the wonder of God's omnipotence. God is a God who has perfect self-control. He never acts contrary to who he is. We as fallen people often act contrary to our better judgment. We often don't have self-control. And that contributes to much of our sinfulness. But a wonderful part of God's omnipotence 
is that he never, he never violates his own attributes, his own being, by acting contrary to who he is as the Holy One. And that's what slams the door shut on this objection. Man can say, can't God forbear? Can't God do whatever he wants? Sure, sin might be offensive to him, but God is greater than we are, and maybe God can just withhold his wrath, choose not to punish human sin. Does human law-breaking necessarily entail that the full penalty that the law prescribes be executed upon the sinner? And man goes on and on in his objections, which all flow from his sinful heart. The answer given to us in answer 10, by no means. A God who can just wink at sin. A God who can, by sheer omnipotence, choose not to do what is right. Such a God is not the one true and living God of the Bible. Such a God is one of the many inventions of man's heart. An image crafted after the imaginations of men in order to coddle man in his sin and thus facilitate continuance in that sin. The God of the Bible is a God who is perfectly self-consistent. And thus his omnipotence is only ever executed in full harmony with his holiness, with his righteousness, with his goodness. Thus the very striking words that we read at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 7, they're striking, aren't they? Verses 9 and 10. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God. The faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And, verse 9 shows that God is faithful, constant, consistent in the showing of mercy to his people. But now, he is also faithful, constant, consistent in what we now read in verse 10. And repayeth them that hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. And those are strong words that ought to make the sinner tremble. Before the God who is a consuming fire. Man can't wiggle his way out of punishment. By pitting God's omnipotence against God's other attributes. Or objecting God should be able to just choose not to punish. No, God reveals himself as the consistent one here. He will repay those who hate him. Repay them to their face. And his repayment, his execution of the just punishment the law prescribes, is just as consistent, unflinching, unwavering, As his covenantal mercy upon his people. So that door. That door that sinful man is quickly trying to build. A door of escape. To get out of punishment. While avoiding confessing his sin. Or acknowledging the justice of God. That door is smashed to pieces. That door is slammed shut. By this word of God. 
God is unchangingly true to himself. He must, must punish sin. He's the Holy One. And he will never act contrary to his holiness. So a couple of applications are in order here. First, as we apply this objection and the Bible's answer, let it shape our view of sin so that we see sin as much as possible through the eyes of God as the Bible lets us see it through the eyes of God. The human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. And one of the ways that the human heart is deceitful is that it's always trying to minimize sin. Not see it for what it is. And that contributes to this idea that God doesn't really need to deal with it or judge it or at least deal with it as seriously and severely as the Bible says. But the the truth of this Lord's Day forces us to reckon with sin as God sees it. He is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins, answer 10 says. Terribly displeased with sin. And that's not because God is just a God with a temper. Like so many of the pagan gods can't predict what they're going to do. They're an exaggerated form of an angry man who gets really upset and lashes out in his anger. That's not our God. God is terribly displeased with sin because he is perfect. Because he is good. And his wrath, his anger is not like ours, which is so often selfish, so often unrighteous. But his wrath and anger is holy. His wrath and his anger is kindled by offense to that which is good. Offense to that which is holy. Offense to himself as the supreme good. Because he is holy, he must deal with sin and punish it to the maximal extent of his holy law. Which as we'll see in the next question and answer is the extreme punishment of body and soul. Separation from God. Being subjected to that holy wrath both in time and everlastingly into the future. And that's hell. That's hell. Sin is deadly serious. And God will punish sin. He punishes it in this life. He punishes men by giving them over to the natural consequences of their sin. We see that in our society, do we not? As man more and more rebels against the basic principles of God's law and takes it upon himself to write his own law in complete contradiction to the law of God, God gives man over to a reprobate mind so that he delves more deeply into the abyss that is sin, to his own ruin, and to the aggravation of his guilt, and the increase of his condemnation, till his cup of iniquity is filled. God does punish human sin in this life. God punishes human sin in the world to come. And so a warning, a warning to all of us to beware of the deceitfulness of sin. 
Not to minimize it, not to wink at it, but with eyes illuminated by the Spirit, by the Word of God, to see it as much as we can with God's eyes. Never to say, as the wicked man in Psalm 94 verse 7 said, The Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. The God of Jacob does regard it. And God's answer is Deuteronomy 7 verse 10. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. There is room here for believers to tremble a little bit. That's good. Our God is just and holy. He takes sin seriously. Let us take sin seriously as well. So holy is God that not a single sin will go unpunished. Not a single sin will be punished to a lesser degree than the maximal extent of God's law. And that leads then to the next application, the application of comfort. What hope do we have then? As fallen people, with just that small beginning of new obedience and a mass of sins, what hope do we have? The comfort of the gospel that God punishes your sin and mine in another. Another who willingly came to stand in your place. Another whom he sends. Another who is qualified to be your sin bearer, your guilt taker, your punishment bearer. Jesus Christ. Lord's Day 4 slams another door shut. No appeal to God's omnipotence. God can't wink at sin. God's not just going to bypass it. That door is shut. But now we're pointed to the door, the way that is Christ, the God-given mediator, the Savior. We saw that Christ saves us by fulfilling the law perfectly for us. He's the obedient Savior. He's also the sin-bearing Savior. Every single one of your sins, mine, and the sins of every other child of God, Every other person that's a part of that new humanity upon whom God set his love in eternity. Every single one of those sins. Jesus came into the world. So that as it were he could reach out and grab that sin off you and say that's mine. Every single one of them. Mine. I take responsibility. Even though I am perfectly holy, even though I have no sin of my own, I take yours, every single one of them. And Christ doesn't leave even a particle of sin left on you. He takes it all upon himself. And then he went to Calvary. And there on Calvary, he stood before the holy God. And with all of those sins on his shoulders, He said, I bear the punishment for these sins. He stretched out his arms and suffered his blessed body to be nailed to that cross. And endured that pain and that shame of body which was but a small part of his sufferings. Because on that cross, all of that punishment that all of your sins and mine deserve was poured out upon the Christ on the cross. Extreme, everlasting punishment of body and soul. Hell was brought to him. And he bore it. And bore it away. So that your guilt, 
wiped clean by his shed blood. That's what Jesus does as the sin bearer. He takes every one of your sins. Takes it away. Bears it for you. So that every one of your sins is punished. And justice is done. But you don't bear the punishment for it. He does. In your place. That's the wonder of the cross that lifts our hearts. We see God maintaining his justice. And yet God in unfathomable unfathomable grace. Redeeming and saving an unworthy people whom he set his love upon. Steadfastly look at Christ and his cross. Think about your sins again. Punished in him. That means no punishment for me. Because God is just. And his justice demands that sin not be punished twice. For God to punish our sins now would do injustice to Christ. Who bore them for us. And so now the justice of God which otherwise should have consumed us, the justice of God ensures we will never be punished for our sins. Christ took it for us. We come to the last of man's attempts to escape. God is righteous in his judgment. We've seen God is fair in punishing sin. We've now seen that God must punish sin. It is necessary. A last attempt is made. But cannot God's justice be overruled by his mercy? Can't God's mercy override his justice in such a way that the demands of justice can be left undone? Or at very least this. Doesn't mercy change justice into something else? So that what the law requires be loosened up a bit and so that the punishment the law prescribes can be softened a bit here man makes one more effort to pit God's attribute of mercy against other attributes of God his justice his holiness but this will be as unavailing as all of his other efforts once again the answer is There's no contradiction in God. Is not God then also merciful? God indeed is merciful, but he's also just. And therefore the requirements both of his justice and of his mercy must be carried out consistently and in harmony. There's no conflict within God. There's no contradiction which man can exploit to force a way of escape out of The punishment that sin deserves. There's no war between justice and mercy. Once again God has no parts. God is a simple being. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear O Israel the Lord our Lord. The Lord our God is one Lord. Meaning he's the one only true and living God. But he's also one in himself. And because he's one in himself. There's never disagreement in him. We have that. We're going to make a tough decision and we feel pulled in many different directions. There's different feelings, different considerations that are pulling us one way, pulling us another way. Never the case with God. He's one within himself. 
And so in all of his works and ways, his justice and his mercy are both perfectly carried out in harmony. Yes, God will show mercy, but never at the expense of his justice. In fact, the illustration that's often helpful here is a river. Justice is the riverbed in which the stream of mercy must flow. God will show mercy. But that doesn't mean he doesn't punish sin. His justice requires that sin, which is committed against his most high majesty, be punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. And that just sentence can never be softened up, bent, or changed into anything else. That door is closed. Mercy can't be pitted against justice. But the open door, Christ. In Christ, mercy flows in the riverbed of justice. Look back at the cross. At Christ the sin bearer. Who took all of those sins off your shoulders and said mine. And took them to the cross and spoke to the Father and said, I will bear the punishment for these sins of my people. There, the extreme punishment that our sins deserve is executed upon the sin bearer. Justice is done. And as that holy fury of the just God is poured out upon the willing substitute of our Lord Jesus Christ. On the basis of that, there is an outpouring of mercy and grace to us. God spends his wrath upon the Christ that he might spare us in his mercy. As Romans 8 says, he spared not his own son, who he delivered up for us all. So that through him we are given all blessings. Justice is not bent or changed or softened in any way. Hell was brought to Christ on Calvary. And he bore it away. And by bearing it away, he merited and obtained for us that stream of mercy. That stream of grace which flows to us. In the riverbed cut by the cross of Calvary. A stream that never ends. A stream that carries us all the way to heaven. There's our peace. There's our comfort. There's our rest. We see our sin. We see the punishment it deserves. We see the justice of God in judging mankind. We even confess, thy judgment is just. I deserve to perish with the rest of the human race. We do not despair. Because God has given us the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way out. The way out. Sin's misery and sin's punishment. And he is the way in 
the way in to God's favor, to God's presence, to God's fellowship, to heaven and eternal glory itself. Our way out. Our way in. Let us, beloved, boast and look unto no other than Christ and Him crucified. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the instruction of this Lord's Day, reminding us of the gravity of human sin and the punishment it deserves from Thee, the Holy God. We thank Thee that Thou hast closed before our eyes once again all of those man-made doors which lead to nowhere but ruin. That with the eyes of faith we may perceive the one and only way of escape. The one and only door through which we may go out and escape the punishment of sin. And go in to the everlasting glory of salvation. The one way who is Jesus Christ. Thus, Father, humbled by seeing our sin, may we also rejoice in our redemption through Christ our Lord. Hear us in mercy for his sake. Amen.